talking about Francine Pascal's Sweet Valley High series never disappoints. These books are always a wild ride. They always bring me back to my childhood. They always frustrate me. They always make me laugh. And I always love every minute of it. Kidnapped by the Cult, the 82nd installment in the series, is no exception. This book was published in 1992, which, as you'll learn later in this episode, was an interesting time for cults in the world off the page. In this book, we find cool twin Jessica Wakefield annoyed with pretty much everyone in her life. She's been grounded for bad grades and feels generally unappreciated by her friends and family, and even by her twin sister, Elizabeth when a guy she meets at the mall seems to immediately understand how she feels and proceeds to invite her to have dinner with his friends, she is entirely on board. The twist comes when Jessica learns that said friends are a more official group that calls itself the Good Friends and is led by a charismatic hottie named Adam Marvel. They preach lofty ideals and say they're collecting money to benefit meaningful causes. But what's their deal really? As Jessica begins spending more time with the good friends, Elizabeth gets suspicious, even as she's embroiled in her own culty situation as a new member of the bowling team, whose captain is trying to woo her away from her longtime boyfriend. Has Jessica been kidnapped by an actual cult? Can she get out from their influence? Will Elizabeth see the light about the bowling team? Keep listening to find out. My guest and I talk all things cults, paying special attention to how this Sweet Valley book portrays the good friends. We also discuss mall hangs, teen paranoia, and first impressions of the Wakefields. You've probably been seeing today's guest just about everywhere lately, and I am so incredibly thankful that she is on the show. I needed an expert on cults, and Amanda Montel is clearly the only choice. Amanda is a writer, linguist, and author of the critically acclaimed books Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism, and Word Slut, A Feminist Guide to Taking Back the English Language. Her writing has appeared in publications like Marie Claire, Teen Vogue, Refinery29, Cosmopolitan, and others. She is also the creator and co-host of the comedy cult podcast Sounds Like a Cult, which is one of my personal favorites. Amanda grew up in Baltimore, holds a degree in linguistics from NYU, and lives in Los Angeles with her partner, plants, and pets. Find her on Instagram at Amanda underscore Montel. Find SSR on Instagram and Twitter at SSRPod and on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast Community. This week, we launch a new month of the free SSR Book Club, a group led by amazing volunteer bookworms who facilitate conversations about throwback reads that have previously been covered on the podcast. In February, our focus is E.B. White's Charlotte's Web, So if you are ready to feel some serious feelings, look no further. Join us at no cost at www.ssrpodcast.com slash ssrbookclub or at the link in SSR's Instagram bio. If you want more SSR book clubs, check out SWR or Shit We Read, which is one of the many perks you get access to when you support the podcast over on Patreon. Every other month in SWR, I personally facilitate an ongoing book club discussion about a book voted on by the group and voting is now open for March. Become a patron now at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page so you can place your vote and read along with us next month. You'll also get access to the SSR Discord channel, SSR merch, monthly newsletters, bonus episodes, reading recap videos, exclusive voice notes, and more. Plus, I can't tell you how much I appreciate the contributions I receive from patrons. If you are in the market for your next favorite audiobook, make sure you check out Libro FM. I love Libro FM because it gives you the chance to support independent bookstores instead of giant companies when you listen to the books on your TBR list. The audiobooks you get from Libro FM are exactly the same as the ones you would buy from the big guys, and they're the same price too. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro FM. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O F-M, and use code SSRPODCAST when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old-school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. 
We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Amanda. Welcome to SSR. Thank you for having me. It's a joy and a pleasure. A joy and a pleasure to talk about literature on a Tuesday afternoon. So I have to say, Amanda, I did something with you that I rarely do, and that is that I imposed a book on you. Um, (laughs) Oh, do you normally do you do you normally have it like mutually agreed? Yeah, I was assigned. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, guests usually have a little bit more agency (laughs) on my show, which I would have given you, obviously, if you didn't want to do this book. But I did feel sort of compelled to like at least lightly ask. I hope I lightly asked. Like, I don't know. No, no. I love the assertiveness. I love being dumbed. I don't want to make decisions I don't have to make. This was perfect. Great. I mean, what else was I to do other than ask you to talk to me about a book called Kidnapped by the Cult when you are like the voice on cults and cultish behavior of our contemporary era? What What is a podcaster to do? I love that the book is called Kidnapped by the Cult. Like there is one cult. The only one. And Jessica Wakefield was kidnapped by it. And like, it's a good thing that we have you here to root out that single cult, because if not, that single cult might still be on the run almost 30 years later. Like it's a good thing we're talking about this. So yes, we are talking about a Sweet Valley title. It is, I believe, number 82. Yes, 82 in the Sweet Valley High universe. Published in 1992. That's my birth year. Wait, that is is my birth year. This was kismet. I feel like we need to dive into that somehow. Like, is that the reason why you have developed this interest in the language of cults? Because you share a birth year with this book? Could be. That's a little conspiratorial. I I think that being a 90s baby does lend itself to an interest in cults because the Heaven's Gate tragedy happened in 97. I was five. That's a formative year, you know, in your early child development. Of course, most five-year-olds are probably not paying attention to headlines of occult suicide, but I was unique. (laughs) I mean, you are you and you are special. And I'm so glad that you did get into that news story because we have all learned so much as a result. But I came across this title, I, I think probably the first time we did a Sweet Valley title on the podcast, which would have been back in 2018. And Mental Floss has this ranking of like the 15 wildest Sweet Valley High plot lines. And listeners who have been following along for a while know that like even a quote normal Sweet Valley High book seems to us as adults in 2021 and 2022 like a little bonkers. Mm-hmm. But I I sort of kept with me this single plot line as it was described in Mental Floss, which was Jessica Wakefield being kidnapped by a cult in Sweet Valley, California. And so I was like, I need to do this. Like at some point we have to talk about this book because Again, bonkers. And at this point, we've done a couple of like, I think I would say four or five Sweet Valley titles, but this has to be the wildest. But before we get into like the meat of this piece of fine literature, (laughs) I would love to hear a little bit more from you, Amanda, about what, if any, history you have with the Sweet Valley High series. Sure. Okay. Well, I own Sweet Valley High books as a kid. I can like picture them in a box in my basement in the home where I grew up, but I don't think I've ever read a single one. I I never was a YA reader ever. Like not even when I was a teenager or a tween when all my peers were reading like Gossip Girl and was Pretty Little Liars a series. No, it wasn't, but it was. was. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was never into it. I mean, when I was When I was that age, I was, and this is very appropriate, I was really into the chicken soup for the soul books, like those sort of like essay collections, but I wouldn't read the whole collection. I would just read the death and dying sections. (laughs) This is all tracking so well with what I know about your work. I'm so glad I'm learning this. (laughs) I always loved like dark, but at the same time, very relatable and personal nonfiction. That okay. was my steez 
from my earliest years. So yeah, I I don't know. I also feel like I, I had nothing in common with the Sweet Valley protagonists. And I guess that's fine. Like you don't have to be able to relate to the protagonists in the literature, the, liter the literature you're reading. But I think maybe I just like saw two like gorgeous blonde girls on the cover of a book and I was like, I can't. I'm like an undersized little brunette Jew in Baltimore, Maryland. And I, I can't, I, I'll develop a complex if I read these books, which I would end up developing on my own already. But anyways, <laughs> that's my history with Sweet Valley. You didn't need their help to, to develop that complex. No, but then of course I would end up, well, I'm no longer blonde, but I would end up blonde in Southern California. So like, is she Jessica Wakefield? No, I guess I would be more of an Elizabeth from what I know from this one book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Sweet Valley comes for us all eventually is what mm -hmm. I've learned. So this was your first ever run in with the twins. It sure was. Yeah. Wow. I need a minute to process that. That is huge news for me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you had read these books and you were a teenager, I would take this moment to ask you, like, if you felt as though growing up, you were more of a Jessica or an Elizabeth. It is a difficult question to answer as adults, I will tell you, because I think what I've noticed over the past few years of having these conversations is that many of the people who come on the podcast like do tend toward bookish, right? Like that's not a surprise. Yeah. And so I think so many of us as a result have an affinity for Elizabeth. I uh -huh. certainly did. And I think in the years between when I read Sweet Valley as like a tween or teen and now I always thought of Elizabeth as the quote, like good twin, like the twin that I related to more and Jessica maybe being like a little bit aspirational because I wanted to be cool, but also like difficult and hard to manage and maybe not always nice to Elizabeth all the time. But what I have learned now that I've read a handful of these books as an adult is that they both have their moments of being terrible and neither of them are particularly empathetic. And I have to say that this book is actually the book where I liked them the best. If that gives you any idea of how the others have been. Oh, they both had many redemptive moments in in this book. I mean, it started out rough. I'll also say for the record, I was holistically terrible as a teenager. So I, I don't identify with Elizabeth for her goodness. <laughs> probably, Got it. Probably more for just her, yeah, for her not being as like slutty. I mean that as a compliment and exciting. Yeah, no, I was like, I, I always found myself in these best friend duos growing up where like I was right, like the, the quote unquote, like smart one, and she was the hot one. And I, I fully reject these binaries now, <laughs> obviously, but growing up with the media that we grow up with, like when you have two women, like whatever, no, it, there's this media still exists. You can't have two pretty best friends. I was not the pretty best friend. But so with that energy in mind, I was I would be an Elizabeth, but not because I was good. I was a thousand percent brat. <laughs> well, and what I've learned now is that Elizabeth is also a brat. But I think when I was reading these books as a tween, I was like, I am good because, of course, we're all the main character in our own stories. And so I was like, I am a good protagonist. And because I identify with Elizabeth because she reads and writes and like isn't invited to parties, she also must be good because I am good. And it's this weird self-fulfilling prophecy of like, this is why I am Elizabeth. And now I read these books and I'm like, both of them have moments of being really mean and rude and cruel to each other and very self-involved, which brings me to the kickoff of this book and the setup. So when we enter the story here, Jessica is, she's really upset, Amanda, because she's grounded. She's having a bad time. Her friends are going to parties. One of her friends is about to go on a trip to London. How dare she? How dare she go to London? Jessica is just like vibrating with jealousy and resentment. But the thing is that it's everybody else's fault. Like that's the important thing. So it's, her parents' fault because they obviously did the grounding. It's her twin sister Elizabeth's fault because she was the one who tattled and precipitated the grounding because this is all comes down to like, a, I think a bad math grade, like that. Bad, yeah. She failed a few math tests, I believe. She failed a few math tests. Failing a few math tests is very me. Yeah. <laughs> but I, yeah, I was, I didn't have a twin. And my parents were benignly de neglectful, bless them both. So they would never know about my failed math tests. 
the worst grade I ever got in my entire academic career was in geometry freshman year. And of course, I'm over it now because oh, <laughs> I don't yeah, remember it at that. all or anything. <laughs> Clearly <laughs> not over it. Um, but yeah, math was not always my best subject. So I, I understand. My parents were not like super into the grounding thing. Like that generally wasn't oh, no. their approach. It was more like I'm so disappointed in you. And can you live with that? That's psychologically devastating. Yeah. My parents were just like too busy to enforce any type of consequences or even like confront details from my life. (laughs) Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I get it. They also, my parents are like extreme optimists. And I'm sure we'll talk about optimism later in this podcast, considering the subject matter. But like my parents only ever wanted to focus on like the good things that I was doing. So they were perfectly happy to turn a blind eye to the possibility that I was smoking weed and failing math. Yeah, they're like, that's cool. Uh, we have other things going on. But that's not how the Wakefields are. The Wakefields no. are like, it has come to our attention that you have failed a few math tests. And so now you must be grounded for three weeks and you're only allowed to go to cheerleading. So it's her parents' fault. It's Elizabeth's fault. And it is somehow her best friend's fault. Um, Jessica thinks to herself, thirdly, she could blame her friends. What sort of friends were they anyway? They knew she was grounded. Did they have to cram every major social event they could think of into the few weeks when Jessica couldn't go? Would real friends act like that? No, Jessica told herself. Real friends would have stuck by her. Mm. Yeah. Well, there's something about the underdeveloped or yet-to-be-developed teenage brain and the brain of a conspiracy theorist that have something in common. Like... They're both paranoid that the world is out to get them. Like the world is fundamentally against them. So in the way that like a teenager might be vulnerable to the message that like no one understands you and but we can, a conspiratorial thinker uh, c- can be susceptible to those messages as well. Little insight. Oh, that's so interesting. That's very insightful and helpful. And I do think that like that resonates with me and some of my memories of being a teenager. And I actually do think that Jessica has some moments at the beginning of this book where I I did feel deeply for her in a way that I often don't in these books. Like the idea that she just felt like the whole world was against her, like as cringy as it is to read that now as a 31-year-old human being. That is so real. Oh, it's so real. When you're in high school, I mean, I just have the most visceral memories of me driving in my Toyota Camry, mm-hmm. like smoking a cigarette out the window. Don't smoke, kids, adults, <laughs> don't do it. I ha- I had like one cigarette a week and thought I was, wait, shit, I shouldn't say this on the podcast because no, my parents won't listen to it. <laughs> I have a direct line to your parents. I'm going to email it to them personally. <laughs> I don't really talk about my parents this much when I do <laughs> podcast interviews. Anyway, no, my parents would be very upset to learn that I had smoked any cigarettes at all in high school. But um, I, <laughs> they would not be upset to learn about any of my other failings. But cigarettes are very bad. Anyway, no, I have like very strong memories of, yes, feeling this intense main character energy. But that main character energy also comes with like, the world is against me. Like there is a conspiracy among my friends and my teachers and my family to ruin my life. And it doesn't make sense, but it's truly in part because your prefrontal cortex as a teenager has not fully matured yet. But we also do have ingrained biases that tell us that if you have big feelings, which you often do as a teenager, and there are like actual like physiological and chemical reasons why things feel so big when you're a teenager, we have this bias that tells us that if you're having a big feeling or experiencing like a big pain, then that thing must have a big cause, like everyone is out to get me. So I think even though Jessica is cringy and spoiled, she's giving me like a combination of, this is literally my first impression of Sweet Valley. I'm so ashamed that I was so unfamiliar with these characters, but she's giving me a little bit like share from Clueless, except kind of without the heart of gold. And also like the Lisbon sisters from Virgin mm. Suicides vibes. Love that. Anyway, she is cringy and spoiled, but anyone who's ever been a teenager can 
empathize with like that nonsensical paranoia that like other people are explicitly and intentionally trying to destroy you. For sure. And she also has this boyfriend who is not helping things. Sam. Sam, because he is more into his dirt bike than he is into Jessica. And Jessica has her like one outing of this whole grounding experience. She thinks that she's going to get to hang out with Sam. Um, I guess that's like an approved activity. And then he's like, oh, actually, I'm going to a dirt bike meet, which like I didn't even think was a thing. Like, I, I guess I don't know anything about dirt biking, but I didn't think you had like meets as a dirt biker. It makes sense. So that's happening. I, I guess so. I mean, you have to have some element of competition in order to like be fully aggro about it. Definitely. Yeah. And I feel like any sporting activity always has its own mini cult surrounding it, you know? Mm-hmm. That's true. I'm waiting for that episode of Sounds Like a Cult, the cult, <laughs> cult of, of dirt, dirt bikers. <laughs> yeah, stay tuned for like season 55. We'll finally get to it. <laughs> you can thank me for that one later, Amanda. Thank you so much. So she's really bummed. Her parents are against her. Her sister ruined everything. She hates her friends. Her boyfriend sucks. So Jessica does what any teenager would do when she's sulking and she goes to the mall because where else would you go? Were you a mall kid, Amanda? thousand percent. My high school was in a commercial area. It was an art school. It wasn't in a residential area. It was like on a busy street, walking distance or a very short driving distance from the mall. A really good mall. Towson Mall in Baltimore County, Maryland for the uh, hometown heroes. For the locals. I would, uh, yeah, I would on occasion uh, skip my online AP bio class, class of one to hit up the Towson Mall. Um, I would go there after school, you know, get an Aunt Annie Ann's, Aunt Annie's or Annie Ann's, one of those soft pretzels. Yeah, Annie Ann's. My husband has a friend who calls them Auntie Ann's, which is like one of my oh, favorite things. <laughs> Fancy. <laughs> yes. You eat them pinky up. Exactly. God, that shit was good. Except I bet if I would revisit it now, I wouldn't think so. Anyway, hell yeah, malls. Love them all. Well, you go, you have to buy as many layered tanks as possible, a few Henleys, some polo shirts. And the thing about going to a mall, especially if you're going with a group, because I don't know about you, but that was like the group outing was like, okay, of course. how many guys and girls can we assemble to go to the mall on a Saturday? Whose mom is going to drive us in her van? Um, and that was where like the magic happened. Like if you were going to get asked out on a date, if somebody was going to have their first ever kiss, it was probably going to be at the mall. The person having their first ever kiss was never me. Spoiler alert. But Jessica goes by herself. This is not a group outing for her. She's just like sitting on a bench, literally moping by herself. But she's not by herself for long, friends. No, she is not because a boy approaches her and his name is Ted. And he sees her in her pain and she feels understood. He says, my parents treated me like a child. My friends weren't there when I needed them. I felt like everyone in the world had let me down. I can remember thinking that I was all alone, that nobody cared what happened to me. He says, like, things turned around. That's because I found some real friends, friends who like me for me, who will never let me down. So this is where, like, I really need you to come in and, like, give us all the good stuff about cultish language Mm -hmm. because there's a lot here. And obviously, like, we're talking about a teen book written by a ghostwriter in 1992. I'm sure that there was little to no research done about the language of cults, but I feel like there's some nuggets here, right? I mean, spoiler alert, I liked this entire masterpiece. Like I thought there were some pretty accurate elements to the the cultish influence. Okay. I mean, obviously it's like watered down as fuck and it's, it's like the most generic cult story ever. But there were some things in here that I, you know, my eyebrows raised up into my hairline. I was like, I would believe that shit would go down in like a Nexium type group. I mean, what we hear throughout this scene is your classic love bomb, your classic example of someone using really generic language, almost like a horoscope that anybody can relate to if they want talk of like, you know, you're, you're alone and your friend, you know, he says some things that are like sort of specific, like almost specific, like, let me guess, you know, your friends only care about themselves. Everyone is this and that things that like, we all feel if we're in that headspace, but felt really specific and resonant to her. Like he was speaking her language in that moment. 
Yeah. So I think he just like clocked that she was vulnerable and then showered her with this really focused attention, making her feel like he alone could empathize unlike anyone else in her life. And if she, you know, came along with him, he could show her the light. And that's the classic example of love bombing when you, you know, flood a vulnerable person or, I mean, vulnerability is an interesting subject in and of itself. You don't have to be like a depressed teenager or a paranoid teenager to be vulnerable. Like a, a lot of things can make a person vulnerable, things that you might not otherwise think of as cult vulnerability. But yeah, so he he floods her with this praise, like, I can tell you're different. Your, your friends don't understand you. It's almost specific, but really as general as a horoscope. And that's sort of the this like little, almost like conversion moment where her eyes widen and she's like, whoa, like I've never felt this way before, which has very little to do with the content of the language that he's using and more to do just with the the delivery and this very, very focused attention that he's paying her. Yeah. I mean, I felt like if I were in her shoes, I would fall for this because he does see her. Like it feels very personal. And like you said, it's just specific enough that like, I think I would be like, yeah, I feel seen. Like you get it. I've only known you for a few minutes, but you seem to see my soul. When you're a teenager, all you want is for somebody to see your soul. And if you're Jessica and you're mad at your boyfriend and you are, as she is in this book, portrayed as boy crazy, which isn't something that I'm like super into, but that is, that's what we see on the page. It's a boy that she is like, probably crushing on. Well, exactly. So this was the other thing I was going to say is that like, you might think to yourself like, oh, if some rando came up to me in the mall, I would never talk to them. I would be so skeptical of that. Like, how could she fall for that? But it depends on the element and it depends on the context. So like if my teenage self was in the mall and some boy came up to me, no, that would not resonate. I would tell him to fuck off. But I I was a theater kid. If I was like, at a rehearsal at the place where I did theater and someone who, I don't know, and like a cool artsy girl came up to me and said this shit to me, that would totally work. So Jessica is like a mall rat who loves boys, exactly like what you're saying. And so this is going to be resonant with her, even if it might not be with me or you. Yeah. And it's, she's like a little uneasy about it, but only after he invites her to come over. He's like, I have these friends We'd love to have you over for dinner. And it's interesting because she seems skeptical, but then she starts to think about how like, oh, won't everybody be so upset when like I don't come home for dinner? Like she's doing it out of spite. So I also feel like he's offering her these platitudes, like this emotional reassurance, but he's also offering her this out that's very attractive to her because she just wants to like disappear from her life in a way that will make people miss her. Right, she's playing hard to get. For sure. I remember when I was young, not high school age, but college age, I remember doing so many potentially unwise things, not to spite people, but like for the story. Like I wanted my life to be interesting and I wanted to like push myself outside of my comfort zone. So like oftentimes what motivates someone to show up to what might end up being a cult meeting is not like they were an idiot or they were gullible. Like you never know what their motivations are. Yeah. And actually like, as you're saying that it occurs to me that like this book was published in 1992, obviously like cults existed in 1992, but this notion that like Jessica might have any sort of suspicion that this might be a cult. Like, I just think this speaks to the wealth of information and like the maturity that is available to teenagers today. Like a teenager in 2022 would probably inherently feel a little bit more skeptical because like they're on social media and they're online and the media is what it is today. And so like there's knowledge of cults. I don't know though. No? (laughs) Because I think a teenager today would probably be less likely to fall for this particular scenario, mostly because it's in person. Like, we not only, like, teenagers today don't just have stranger danger. Like, they're afraid of people, like, in person. I think teenagers today are just as susceptible to cult influence as they ever were. It's just that the medium is different. Like, now the cults that they're being inducted by are on Instagram or on TikTok. They're online. 
That's true. They just, yeah. I don't think, I don't think they're more skeptical. Well, if they are more skeptical now, I don't think that the, the threats have caught up or like, I don't think their skepticism has caught up to the number of threats that there are out there now because of the internet. That's true. I do feel like teens like fall for more shit online now, but yeah, maybe that's, maybe that's what I'm thinking about. Like, I'm just imagining like a teen sitting on a bench in a mall, which like probably wouldn't happen very frequently anyway. But if some like random guy came up to them and started talking to them, I do think that would raise a red flag because it's like, well, why is this weird guy talking to me? Totally. Whether or not they would associate it with like a cult per se, I do think maybe like the in-person interaction would be more suspicious to them. Whereas, yes, I mean, my understanding is that teens fall for like a lot of things on that. (laughs) I hope that they don't because I want them to be safe, but it does seem like that's the reality. But you are right though, that 92 was definitely a bit of a cult lull in Mm -hmm. modern American history because obviously the 60s and 70s Right. Was a cult spike. And then in the 80s, you have the following satanic panic when like suburban parents were all paranoid that cults of Satan worshipers were trying to kidnap and abuse their children. The 90s, though, like people weren't as much on cult high alert until Heaven's Gate which was in the later 90s. So you're right about that, though. Like, she probably wouldn't be thinking like, oh, you're going to induct me into a cult in 92. Right. She wasn't thinking about that. But she does end up going to to dinner. At this point, she doesn't know that the group is called The Good Friends, but that is where she's going. She's going to, like, Good Friends HQ. I do want to take a minute to talk about The Good Friends as a cult name. (laughs) Well, later on in the book, Spoiler alert. There is mention that the group had been moving around the country, renaming and rebranding itself. And that's super accurate. And I think Good Good Friends is a completely believable name for this group. I mean, so many of the infamous cults that a lot of us can name have these incredibly general titles like The Family. Or like the children. So weird. <laughs> or like the children of God. And they and they change and morph over time. Like a lot of these sketchy groups um, that move around in an effort to evade persecution will also change their names. And it normally changes to something more and more generic every single time. There are actually so many different cults called the family. Real cults. Because it's just such a... It's such an untrackable word. It's so, so vague Um, and sounds innocent enough. Although now enough groups are called the family that it sounds sus. (laughs) There's even a cult in my all-time favorite television series, Six Feet Under, called The Family. So uh, I think The Good Friends is a completely believable title, especially because it's vague, but it also has that slight positive connotation. It feels innocent enough. It's not telling on itself in any way. I'm here for it. Yeah, I also feel like in 2020, it could be veiled with like a cute Instagram presence. Like if there was sort of a seedy underbelly to it, like you can imagine the merch. It would be tie-dye with like the little good friends logo uh, oh like on the chest with like a little smiley face. Canva there would be, grams oh all over the gosh, place. Like carefree looking blondes, like spinning in circles in the post you like follow glossier on instagram and the drop down is like also follow good friends right and you follow them but then you don't know that they're actually this group that's moving around the country inhabiting houses in what jessica would describe as like the crappy part of town and stealing money from people at the mall okay so that that like hypothetical that we just described that i can see happening to teenagers easily It starts with Instagram. You follow a brand that has good marketing. I mean, good marketing and cultish language and cultish manipulation techniques, a lot of overlap, (laughs) like that Venn diagram is a circle. Um, But yeah, I can see that happening where you, I mean, I have seen this happen with like, oh my gosh, these these brands are a dime a dozen, um, especially in this like sort of bastardized Eastern practices, like new age circle. It'll start with like an Instagram brand that looks really cute and aesthetic and innocent, but really it's connected to a group that might have an in-person presence. It might not, but that's sinister and scammy and exploitative. Did I just lay out a plausible plan for a cult? Like, you know that I've been following your work because like it all came to me very clearly. 
Yeah, I'm trying to inspire a generation of cult <laughs> leaders. You Great. you discovered me. <laughs> I think I understand. I'm I am understanding the assignment, as the cool TikTokers say. So Jessica does go to the house, and she is initially really judgmental about the circumstances of like you know, about the environment. Jessica has really expensive taste, and this is just not fitting her normal standard. They're eating tofu. Yeah. Oh gosh, not tofu for Jessica. She would. She would never. I mean, that would never be her choice. And I mean, she seems at first like a little unsure about the like kind of like lay people in the cult, but they start talking about Adam Marvel, their leader, and her antenna are definitely up because she's like, hmm, they, he seems really cool. Like, I need to know more about him. And when she meets him, it's like game over. Like, she will do anything to be close to him. She wants to be by his side. He asks her to help him with gardening. And she's like, I love to garden. Gardening is my favorite. Like, what do you need me to till? What do you need me to dig? I know all of these things. Adam Marvel is a really interesting cult leader. And I, I pulled out a lot of quotes of his that I am happy to share and sort of get your take on them. But generally speaking, like, what are your thoughts on Adam Marvel and the way he's portrayed as the leader of the Good Friends in this book? Well, something I like that this book consistently does is like set the scene for what Jessica thinks a cult is or what she mm -hmm. thinks this group of like hippy dippy weirdos is going to be. And then it turns it on its head. So like she expects Adam Marvel, this sort of like spiritual guru to look like Gandalf meets Santa Claus or whatever she right. says. And then he shows up and he's like 35 and super hot and like chiseled and blonde <laughs> and right because of her character and how hard she crushes on boys you're right it's game over he reminds me of an instagram cult leader that i document in the last part of my book named bentinho massaro y'all can look him up if you can spell his name <laughs> but it's b-e-n-t-i-n-h-o for um those interested but um who is this sort of like new agey hottie from Scandinavia who has this like indiscriminate but sexy European accent who operates online and uses like good digital marketing strategies to attract people but then also has an in-person presence but his social media presence is super robust I mean he, he's like on YouTube on Instagram whatever yeah he has a ton of ridiculous claims I mean he claims to be a prophet to vibrate on a higher vibration than even Jesus. He claims to be like several thousand years old, but you would never know any of these absurd claims if you just followed him on Instagram because he shares this sort of like horoscope, generic spiritual wisdom made on like Canva quotegrams, like all these people do. And then you, you see him in like a Reels or an IGTV and he's very handsome and he defies that stereotype of the sort of like bearded, robe-clad cult leader. So yeah, I think Adam Marvel is a perfectly believable. I mean, of course, like this is a 120 page book or whatever, and I would have loved some some backstory on right. Adam, but I guess uh, that's not what this was about. That might have been too much for the Sweet Valley universe. But yeah, I think a very handsome, sort of like power hungry dude who leads with this very wise, calm demeanor, but is actually a scammer and a con artist feels believable to me. Feels about right. Um, so yeah, I pulled out a couple, a couple of quotes of his that I just wanted to share. So at one point, he's like talking to Jessica about her life and her friends. And she explains that she's part of the cheerleading team and in a sorority at school. And like, she's trying to explain how that means that she's part of something and she has friends, but he is, he's trying to make her understand that like, she's always competing. And so that means that those aren't actual communities. Those aren't real friends. He says, don't you see Jessica, as long as you feel like that, you're not really part of the group. You're competing with the group. He says, our society teaches us to think only of the individual. You know, I've been watching you today and I can tell that you are more comfortable and relaxed than you have been in a long time. Am I right? You know what I think, Jessica? I think it's because we bring out the best in you because we really appreciate you. Um, he says, we never demand things from our friends. We believe that people should be themselves. It's obvious from what you've told me today that the people you usually associate with are selfish and self-centered. Because they're that way, they make you that way too. 
you have no opportunity to express your true nature, which is giving and generous. We really want to help you, Jessica. We think you have the potential to be an exceptionally fine person, and we'd very much like you to be our friend. And it's like, who doesn't want to hear that yeah. as a teenager? That like, you want to be my friend? Great. Like, I'm in. And I also think like I have this pet peeve that is unfortunately aggravated again and again and again in these older YA books. And we see it again here. And and it comes up not only with Adam Marvel, but also with Sam in this book. It comes up with Elizabeth and her bowling team captain, which is like a whole other Mm -hmm. story. And her boyfriend, Todd, like this whole idea of these like men and boys telling girls and women who they are and like what they're like. And I feel like that's Adam Marvel's whole thing with Jessica. Like he's telling her like, this is who I know you are, for Mm -hmm. which he has no evidence. He really has no idea who she is. And then he's going on to tell her like who she can be with his help and what her potential is as if it's up to him to define that and then to bring it out of her. Yeah. Well, so I think realistically, um, this whole paragraph that he says to her would probably be strung out over like many conversations um, if this were happening in real life. But I think that the sentiment is pretty accurate. First of all, there are some like mini truths in there that like, I don't know that like when you think too individualistically, you're unable to connect that excessive competition can like stymie happiness. Like I think these are like little nuggets of wisdom and the way that he phrases them so definitively in these really practiced proverbs sounds about right. I mean, it sounds like a Keith Raniere quote. This is the leader of Nexium who I keep referencing. Um, But I think that what you're saying is true that, you know, we as adults are are triggered when someone tells us who we are. But when you're a teenager, you're still navigating your identity. And in a way, I think more now than in the 90s, but still in the 90s, the challenge of figuring out exactly who you are and that pressure can feel really crushing. And so when a charismatic and very confidently speaking older person is telling you who you are, is giving Mm -hmm. you a sort of template for your identity um, and is making you feel really seen, like he knows you better than you know yourself, I mean, depending on your nature and your nurture and your background and all those things, you you might think like, oh, you're you're a blowhard and you're full of shit. But I think the average teenager would be at least intrigued and compelled by that, if not completely won over. Because when someone else makes the decisions for you, like you making the decision to read Sweet Valley, I got kicked out by the cult so that I didn't have to choose what book. That I was just feel... trying to make your life easier. Like yes. I know that it's hard. Yeah. But I honestly, know. like that can feel <laughs> that can feel comforting. Um yeah. especially if you're a teenager. So I think that, you know, these like nuggets of pseudo wisdom in combination with providing that identity template to a teenager who's figuring out who they are and who is in this moment of reckoning as Jessica is, that feels right. Also, what I like about this is um, we have this preconceived notion in our minds, or a lot of us do, that people who are susceptible to joining a group like this would be, you know, sort of like the loser loner at school. But I think it's actually quite realistic that they would want to go for the cheerleader. Mm. Cults want winners. That's why they often recruit celebrities, even, you know, B-list celebrities like Nexium and, you know, the popular kids in school because they, they want their group to seem successful. First of all, they want people who have connections in the community who could potentially get other people to to join, who could potentially access money that the group could benefit from. Um, And they also don't want people who are liable to break down quickly. Like they want really bright, optimistic, resilient people who aren't going to leave as soon as things turn hard. That's the thing I probably like most about this book in terms of like the message about cults is that it defies this, this, you know, myth that a lot of us believe that the people who join cults are these losers. Hmm. That's, that's a really interesting point. And I do think like Jessica's resilience and her confidence for, I would say like the second half of the book is the thing that allows her to continue to show up with the good friends, even Mm -hmm. when everybody else in her life is like, not only questioning this group that they're starting to catch wind of as potentially shady, but they're also like questioning her behavior. So 
they're kind of criticizing the fact that she's dressing differently. And all of a sudden she's talking about like studying all the time, which is her cover for going to hang out with the good friends. But I think somebody who is less confident and less resilient and less just like sure of themselves would probably struggle more to like push back against those voices. And Jessica has no problem being like, no, I'm going to like keep going and and keep dressing the way I want to dress. And I'll keep lying to you about studying because quite frankly, like she's lied to her parents before. Like she's already the kind of kid who is like willing to do what she wants and goes after what she wants at all costs. And this is where I really like did feel for Jessica in a way that I generally don't when I, when I read these books as an adult, because I felt like, I mean, cult shit aside, like at the beginning of this book, everybody's criticizing Jessica or her family is at least for like not being smart enough and for not being like Elizabeth. And they're trying to ground her so that she gets more serious. And then she gets involved with the good friends and the perception that everybody now has of her quite suddenly, to be fair, like it's a, it's jarring, but she is serious now. Like they say that she dresses like a social worker, which is like an interesting analogy. Um, and she's talking about studying all the time. Like the, the way that it looks to anybody who doesn't understand that she has joined this group is that she's just become like really serious because of this grounding. And then they're criticizing her for that. Like Elizabeth is kind of making jokes about like, oh, like Jessica could never be like that. And nobody is taking this change in her seriously. And I actually like was really sympathetic to her because it feels like Jessica can't do anything right. And normally she just annoys the hell out of me. But in this book, I was like, no wonder you are desperate to like find acceptance with a group that like will take you from where you are. They will take you seriously for your ideas and they want to like help you. And of course, you find out in the end that their motives are far from pure and they have a lot of other shit going on. But I got it. Like I understood why Jessica was having a hard time. I definitely agree. And I think that the quote unquote cult of the very wealthy, heteronormative, problematic, sexist community that she is coming from is almost like not less destructive than the group that she's joining because the, her her margin of like who she's allowed to be is so narrow. Like she's allowed yeah. to be this like pretty boy crazy, irresponsible, pink wearing stereotype. And the second she deviates, everyone is questioning her and not taking her seriously and treating her like a joke. And I think that can be in, in real life, obviously, like these books flatten these characters, but in, in real life, like that can be pretty traumatic for a young person, like not to be able to fully explore the wide range of their humanity. And that that could be something that makes someone vulnerable to a group or, a, or even a single person who's saying, I see you. And, and something that I think is similar between Elizabeth's kind of weird random plot line in this book and, and Jessica's is like Elizabeth is sort of being swayed by these like kind of toxic male figures. Like she's like a tug of war rope and these two boys are, are pulling at her. Um, and I think like the, the toxic sway of one single person and the toxic sway of a group can be very similar. And if, if you're not feeling like the people in your family or your friend group accepts you, that is the, the perfect opportunity for someone or some few to come in and say like, no, I, like join me. Like, I think you're pretty. I think you're smart. I think whatever you, you think you're not, they'll make you feel like you are. So I, I don't know what my final point on that is. But yeah, I, I did feel for Jessica in, in the book as well. Yeah. And to your point about Elizabeth's situation, there's unsurprisingly like not a lot on the internet about these books as far as like reviews or like thoughtful pieces. Yeah. But I did find a couple of blog posts, mostly from people who were revisiting the series like through 2020 and 2021 because they were bored and lonely, um, which I understand and deeply connect with. And a few of those bloggers argued that like Elizabeth's bowling team is in some ways like more creepy and culty because yes, Justin, the like bowling team coach or captain, like seems to be an adult when Elizabeth is a is technically a child, like she's a teenager. That's what I'm saying. I'm like, there's a lot of cultishness going on in this book yeah. beyond the good friends. 
Yeah, so I don't think it's just Adam Marvel. And I think, you know, ultimately we find out that the good friends are collecting money at the mall, like not for a good cause, but to buy themselves food and like for their own cost of living. And like, obviously that's objectively wrong. But I think separate from that, like the good friends like seem okay. Like they seem like they have these lofty ideas about what it means to be a good person and how to connect with other people. And I think in our like Instagram speak of 2022, a lot of that would like connect with people sort of big picture. Oh, a thousand percent. I mean, no one would ever join a cult if the promises were like, we're going to steal from people and make you feel exploited, you know, like the promises are always really positive and really noble. Even Jonestown, aka the People's Temple, started out as an integrationist church that then grew to this like anti-racist socio-political movement. Like so many people I know now would be on board with that. So yeah, I mean, I, I think the most dangerous thing about the good friends beyond like scamming people for money because it seemed like small potatoes. I'm aware of some very real Instagram cult leaders who collect money under the guise of of a nonprofit and actually use it for completely different selfish means. That's a completely different story that I won't talk about here, but like that's very realistic. Like the idea yeah. that this group would claim to be doing good for the community, but actually just using it for themselves. I think them using it to just like pay for their own food is actually like pretty innocent compared yeah. to the real stories that I've heard. I guess you have to keep it kind of like PG rated for the Sweet Valley High books. But um, but yeah, I think that, uh, right, the, the most dangerous thing about The Good Friends is the echo chamber created by Adam Marvel. He has mm. such a hold on everyone and it's and it's so against the rules to question him or to argue with him. And that's brought up earlier in the book when Jessica does try to question, like, I thought we were supposed to be giving this money to charity when they're actually using it to feed themselves. They're like, you're not like arguing with Adam, are you? Like, you, you, if you're questioning Adam, this might not be the group for you. And that I think is the most dangerous part of, of any group, whether it is a bowling group or a whatever community of boho floaters, you, you need to be able to scrutinize and push back and have that be heard and welcome. And if it's not, that's like cult red flag number one. Yeah. And, and in the end, the good news is that Jessica does get out of the cult. Um, although we know that she's going to be back to her like problematic other ways in book yes. three. Um, some other hijinks ensue. Of course, there's a twin swap moment. There almost always is in a Sweet Valley High book. Elizabeth tries to go and get the story on the good friends by posing as Jessica and going to spend some time there. Uh, their dad, the lawyer, who is also like an investigator of some sort, is the one who, who kind of finds out the good friends are in town and causing problems. So like a lot of sort of classic Sweet Valley tropes also occur. But in the end, Jessica does, quote, see the light and she returns to her normal life um, and the good friends leave town. And it seems that order is restored in Sweet Valley. But what I'm hearing you say, Amanda, is that on the whole, the portrayal of a cult in this book is, and I'll editorialize this here, like kind of shockingly accurate. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously a lot is condensed and generalized yeah. and flattened, but I think some of the key sentiments, the love bombing, the inability to question, the targeting of someone who is ostensibly like quite attractive and not at all desperate. I think those are some important and, and yeah, pretty realistic points in the book. Interesting. Now, this is this is really unlike any other Sweet Valley High book that I have ever read. So I feel like this isn't like the best introduction to it. But I am curious, like what your thoughts are as a first time Sweet Valley reader, because I think some people might argue that like the Sweet Valley fandom is something of a cult. Yeah, well, I was going to say when you were saying that, like everyone in the pandemic was rereading Sweet Valley High for nostalgia because they were feeling like lonely and sad. I'm like, the, those are the perfect conditions for a cult. <laughs> <laughs> Got them. Um, yeah, I think the Sweet Valley. Well, on, on my podcast uh, where we discuss a different cultish group from the zeitgeist every week and try to figure out how bad it is, we have these three categories, live your life, watch your back and get the fuck out. I would categorize the cult of Sweet Valley High readers as a live your life 
from what I know of it thus far. But yeah, I my impression of Sweet Valley High. Well, <laughs> when the twin swap moment happened, I was thinking like, this must come up a lot. And yet Elizabeth was like, oh, I have a brilliant, beyond brilliant idea. Why didn't I think of this before? We're going to swap places. I'm like, how how had you not thought of that yet like doesn't that happen every it must happen every book like you're twins are you not so yeah i uh i thought that was funny but my impression i mean i don't even really know what to compare it to because i'm telling you like the number of ya novels that i've read in my life i can probably count on one hand like i i had a good little time i don't know i i love a cult story every time i start to think like i'm so bored of cult stories i don't want to ever read about another cult ever again i sit down to read even the silliest most generic ya cult story and i'm like ooh, what's gonna happen i'm just like definitely in the right line of work i think i enjoyed it i saw it in the context of the 90s there's a lot in it that i would uh not recommend for a teenage girl reading right now or maybe ever um a lot of standards are set by these books that i think are kind of fucked but as a 29 year old um adult who's gotten over her blonde socal girl complex i i yeah i didn't hate my time reading it Great. Well, that makes me feel a little less guilty about imposing this book on you. Other than Kidnapped by the Cult, the one and only cult, Amanda, what have you been reading that you would recommend to our listeners? I'm kind of late to the party, but the other day I started reading The Body Keeps the Score. It's about trauma. Yeah. Written by We're, both, a... we're just looking at each other nodding. <laughs> yeah. I'm starting to write my next book which is about irrationality and magical thinking in the modern age. And um, so I'm very interested in brain science and the relationship between how our minds work and the behaviors that we exert in our, in our lives. So I, I don't normally annotate books and I've been like, I love, eyelining oh my god listen to me i'm i'm putting eyeliner on my book i'm underlining <laughs> the shit out of it it's it's in, it's insanely interesting in fact i'm probably going to procrastinate today by reading this although i guess it's not procrastination if i'm going to be referencing it in my new book so anyway body keeps the score okay well i will include a link to the body keeps the score in the show notes for this episode along with a link to kidnapped by the cult if anybody wants to join us in this hilarity and of course links to your books amanda i am so excited that you were on the show because i have so enjoyed reading your work i love listening Thanks. to your podcast sounds like a cult what do you want to share with our listeners? I know we have a lot of fans of yours in the community, but I know you have a new season of the podcast coming and lots of other cool things coming up. So plug away. Thank you. Um, well, you can buy my book, Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism, which is about the language of cults from Scientology all the way to SoulCycle. Wherever you buy books, I encourage you to buy it from bookshop.org or a local indie bookstore. You can demand that they order it if they don't have it in stock. My first book is called Word Slut. You can also get that wherever books are sold. And yeah, my podcast, Sounds Like a Cult, is listenable wherever you get your pods. We had a season one and a few bonus episodes air in 2021. And now my co-host and I are gearing up to turn the podcast into a continuous weekly ongoing thing. So it'll be back um, within the next couple of months. I'm trying to think of some of my favorite episodes. I really loved the Soul Cycle episode from last year. Classic. And also Celebrity Mega Churches. <laughs> and The Bachelor, although like as a longtime Bachelor fan who's become more of a snarker, uh, that was like hard for me to listen to. And I love Kendall, so I was happy that you had her on, but I just I had complicated feelings about about that one, but really? I think they're all brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I love listening to your reflections. I love your rating system. And listeners, if you have not checked it out, I'm pretty sure I've plugged Sounds Like a Cult in like the SSR newsletter and on my stories and a bunch of other places. Oh, but you. on the off chance that you haven't listened, like now's now is your moment. You got to go check it out. They're fun. If you're a cult podcast listener or a true crime podcast listener, this is like a lighthearted, snackable show to add to your mix so that you don't feel like terrified and paranoid and misanthropic all the time. 
Totally. And I'm so grateful that you took the time to do even more cult stuff and read this book with me and then to talk about it. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your extraordinary insight and expertise uh, on a book that I feel like maybe just doesn't really get that kind of a close eye very often. So thank you so much for your time. This was so much fun. <laughs> this was a hilarious way to spend my Tuesday morning on my time zone. Oh, right. That's right. Yeah, it, uh, it was an honor and um, a distinct pleasure. <laughs> great literature. Well, thanks, Amanda. Great this literature. Was great. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.